In the sculptured relief Last Judgment Tympanum over the doors of the cathedral at Notre Dame in Paris, or the cathedrals in Bruges, or in Reims, or virtually every Gothic cathedral in Europe, you'll see among the saved a seated figure of an old man with a beard, holding in his lap several small figures that look like babies, and folded in the robes around his bosom. This is a favorite late medieval depiction of the bosom of Abraham, showing the souls of his bosom as children under his special protection, who seem immune from judgment and already saved. The translation in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible that we just heard read is generally the most accurate and the most theologically nonpartisan translation available in English. But I'm afraid in its rendition of this famous passage from Luke 16, the translators have made a grave error in eliminating one of the most colorful and vivid images in the entire Bible. The King James Version of the text reads, It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Here the RSV, it says, to be with Abraham. Now no one is ever going to write a song that goes, rock my soul in the place where I'm with Abraham. <laughs> so the new RSV loses the poetry of the text. It does maintain the gist of the meaning of the parable in an echo of the Old Testament prophet's emphasis on the necessity for social justice and the relief of the sufferings of the poor. Christ calls for charity and emphasizes that like all the faithful of Israel, Israel expanded here in its New Testament spiritual understanding to Christians as well as Jews, the poor are the beloved children of Abraham. But Christ, or Luke, in this parable, backs away from the idea of corporate sin expounded by prophets like Amos or Hosea and turns neglect of the poor into an individual sin. The rich man of the parable, serving mammon rather than God, never even notices Lazarus lying at his gates, begging for his sustenance, hoping only for crumbs from his banquet. It's only when he himself becomes a beggar at the gates of Abraham and pleads himself for crumbs from Abraham's table or a drop of water from Lazarus that the rich man notices the pauper at all. Ironically, even after this reversal, the rich man still sees Lazarus as a servant whose job it should be to bring him water or to be sent as a messenger to his father's house to warn his brothers. This theme of charity to the poor and their inclusion in the salvation of Christ is in perfect keeping with the overall emphases of Luke's Gospel. There's a reason that Luke tends to be almost everybody's favorite Gospel, with the exception of those confused souls who follow the contemporary heresy known as the Prosperity Gospel. Luke consistently emphasizes universalism, social justice, and compassion for those rejected by the establishment. Gentiles as well as Jews are on Luke's radar. Women have a crucial role in Luke's story. One of the crucified thieves is saved in Luke. The Good Samaritan is a Lucan parable. 
The Lucan Beatitude blesses the poor, not the poor in spirit. And so it's perfectly reasonable that Lazarus, not the rich man, ends up in Abraham's bosom in Luke's Gospel. Now I could spend the rest of the sermon haranguing you all about the love of money being the root of all evil and trying to make you feel guilty for not spending more of your wealth on alleviating the sufferings of the poor in our society. But I'm not going to do that. It's too obvious for one thing. And for another, you already know what you have, you know what you do, you know what you could do, and in most cases what you do is significant. And further, I don't think that's the chief insight of the parable as Luke tells it. One of the most interesting things that the story does is it gives us some insight into the emerging notion of life after death as it was developing in the first century Jewish and Christian theology. First, let me go back to that image of the bosom of Abraham. Biblically, the phrase is unique in this passage from Luke. The word usually translated as bosom, again, not translated at all in the NRSV version, is the Greek kolpos, which literally means the side or the lap. This may explain why the little souls in the Gothic cathedrals are sitting in the patriarch's lap. Figuratively, this seems to have its roots in the ancient Jewish custom during the period of the Second Temple of eating meals while reclining close to other guests, the guest of honor lying closest to or in the bosom of the banquet's host. This is the sense in which the term is used in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, where the disciple whom Jesus loved is said to be reclining next to him at the Last Supper, or again, more literally, in the King James Version, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. The usage is particularly ironic in the case of Lazarus, who in life was shut out of the rich man's banquet, but now sups in the honored place at Abraham's feast. Sitting down with Abraham seems to have become associated with an afterlife even before Luke's Gospel. In the non-biblical Jewish fourth book of Maccabees, the righteous who are martyred in the faith are said to be welcomed to paradise by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 11, Christ says, Many will come from east and west and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The tradition continues into the next few centuries, so that in the third century, the rabbi Adabar Ahaba is said to be sitting in the bosom of Abraham, when he's thought to have entered paradise. From a modern Christian point of view, this parable looks like a description of heaven and hell. It appears that the rich man, or Dives as he's sometimes called, a name which means rich man, <laughs> is, a place, is in a place of eternal torment, while Lazarus is in perfect comfort forever. But the parable itself does not use that terminology. Christ, or Luke, or Luke's source, uses the term Hades, the conventional Greek rendering of the Jewish concept of Sheol. In ancient Israel, Sheol is simply a place of silence into which all human beings descended at death. After the Babylonian captivity, though, more complex ideas about Sheol began to enter into, Jerusalem, into Judaism. In the non-biblical book of Enoch, Sheol is actually divided into four separate areas the quarter in which you would spend eternity dependent upon your character in life. In the apocryphal Apocalypse of Zephaniah, 
the righteous dead in Sheol are separated from the unrighteous and their torments by a river across which an angel boatman like Charon in Greek myths will ferry the souls of the righteous to be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here, as perhaps is suggested in Luke's parable, Abraham acts as a kind of guardian of the boundary between the righteous and the unrighteous. Typically unaware of the historical context of these images, early and medieval Christians were more likely to apply the heaven and hell interpretations to the passage. But in deciding just what the passage had to say about the destination of our souls after death, the whole bosom of Abraham idea gave theologians fits. It seems fairly clear in the context of the parable that the faithful believer, like Lazarus, is brought into eternal bliss instantaneously at the moment of his, his or her physical death. For early Christians, this was a stumbling block. Every official creed of the church intended to define orthodoxy. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed very specifically requires, I believe in the resurrection of the body. It's only at the time of universal resurrection at the last judgment that the faithful are to enter into eternal bliss. So something had to be done with this notion of the bosom of Abraham. So it was that in the third century, the Christian theologian Tertullian described the bosom of Abraham as a place in Hades in which the righteous dead await the last judgment on the day of the Lord. St. Augustine in the 5th century described the righteous dead as disembodied spirits who waited in imperfect bliss, hidden in some secret place, presumably the bosom of Abraham, until judgment day. This is probably why those last judgment panels in the Gothic cathedrals include the bosom of Abraham images in their depictions. Abraham's bosom came to be associated with limbo, where the patriarchs of the Old Testament were said to have waited until the crucifixion of Christ, after which, in the Western tradition, he raised them to heaven through his harrowing of hell. But since Abraham was among those raised from limbo, he's now in heaven, according to this tradition, and thus gradually the bosom of Abraham came to be associated in the West with heaven itself, and with the idea that the soul is immediately brought directly to heaven's bliss upon our demise. But that's exclusively a Western church teaching. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, the bosom of Abraham remains a separate state distinct from heaven wherein the souls await the final judgment. In the 16th century, when the theological arguments about Abraham's bosom were raging, Martin Luther had the sense to say, look folks, it's a metaphor. <laughs> But he still came down against the idea of immediate heavenly bliss. Well, much as I hate to dismiss hundreds of years of serious theological debate by the likes of Tertullian, Augustine, Luther, and the rabbis of the Talmud, I finally have to say that in reality, it seems to me to be much ado about nothing. A great misdirection of brain power to try to prove things that are unprovable in this life. And. I declare that all of this misses the point of the parable because the point of the parable isn't Abraham's bosom or the structure of the afterlife and it isn't even charity for Lazarus or punishment for Dives. The point of the parable is the chasm. In the story a great chasm is fixed between the place where Lazarus lies in Abraham's bosom and the place where the rich man Dives suffers his torment. No one can pass between the two, no matter how much they may want to. 
It may be easy for us to think of this chasm as the great divide between heaven and hell. But again, this is probably an anachronistic reading. Still, it's an eternally unbridgeable gap between Dives and Lazarus. This is another of the great ironies of the parable. Dives himself had maintained that gap, that chasm between himself and Lazarus all of his life. A chasm that prevented him from even noticing the poor man at his gates, let alone seeing him as a person. Certainly the gap between his wealth and Lazarus' poverty already existed, but he did nothing in his life to uh, close that gap. It would be easy here to talk about the current gap between rich and poor in our country, uh, a disparity that is, according to a recent report from the Pew Research Center, the greatest such gap ever recorded. Average upper-income families are now seven times wealthier than middle-income families and 70 times wealthier than the average lower-class family. More disturbingly today, the wealth of the top one-tenth of one percent of Americans is equal to that of the entire lower 90 percent of all Americans. But this parable is not simply about wealth. It's not simply about a wealth chasm. It's chiefly about a love chasm. The gap in the parable is not just between the rich and the destitute. It's between a child of God and one who has rejected God's call by placing a barrier between himself and a fellow child of God, a fellow spiritual heir of Abraham. The rich man has placed that barrier between himself and Lazarus in life and even maintains it in death, assuming Lazarus will wait upon him. But in death, it's too late to close that gap. And so it has become permanent. What subjects Dives to eternal torment is not his riches in themselves, but his failure to love, his erecting barriers between himself and a fellow child of God, his building a wall. And so the ultimate message of this parable is not comfort, not the image of our final reward in the loving protection of Abraham's bosom. The parable is a warning to the people of Luke's time and to us reading the gospel two millennia later. But where exactly does Luke intend that we situate ourselves in the story? Probably not as Lazarus, though poor readers at times may have been encouraged to read it that way as a promise of eternal reward for present suffering. Certainly not the rich man, since he's dead and beyond hope. But he does have five brothers, or siblings. The Greek word adelphoi, translated as brothers here, can also more in inclusively mean siblings. If we see ourselves as one of the siblings still alive, then we, like they, have a chance to amend our ways, to close our own chasms while we yet live. We have time to see the poor people at our doors. Who is it that we ignore, that we treat as less than fully human, that we regard as inferior to ourselves? Only you can answer that for yourselves in the privacy of your own thoughts. Is it Muslims or Jews or Hispanic immigrants? Is it blacks or whites or Asians or Native Americans? 
Is it people in prison? Is it gays, lesbians, transgender people? Is it the handicapped, the elderly, the homeless, the poor, the rich, Republicans, Democrats? Where is it that you maintain that great chasm? We have time to ask ourselves where we might feel self-satisfied, self-justified, or superior to the extent that there are others we have not accepted or have separated ourselves from, where we've created a chasm of love. We have Moses and the prophets. We have the scriptures. We even have someone who has come back from the dead. The parable tells us we have no excuses. If we make that chasm permanent, then can even God's love cross it to find us? Amen.